for you, uh, but today we're going to jump into God's Word, uh, and if you've never been to church before, this is a good Sunday to come because we preach through a sermon series, uh, and today we're starting a brand new sermon series called Now You Know. Anybody ever at all of our campuses, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, you ever have a Now You Know moment, like a moment where you're like, oh, I never knew that before, and now you know, right? Like I never experienced that as a reality, but now I've experienced it as a reality, and it has completely changed the way I look at reality. Let me give you an example. When I was 24 years old, I started when I was 22, but when I was 24 years old, I had this now you know moment with hot dogs. How many of y'all love hot dogs in here? I'm about to ruin it for you. Uh, and so I was a junior high youth pastor, and so we did a lot of events for our kids, and, and when you have teenagers, you need to have food for them. And, and since we were on a tight budget, we always did hot dogs. I'm not talking all beef hot dogs. I'm talking like the cheap hot, 89 cents for eight hot dog pack. Like you go get the cheapest hot dogs you can find. There was sometimes at the sale at Crest or H-E-B, I forget what's, what grocery store was, you'd get an eight-pack of hot dogs for 33 cents. So we got those all the time. Sometimes we would get them, and we would freeze them, and we would serve them six months later. The teenagers didn't know. They were just happy to be alive. And so one day I was buying hot dogs, and at those events, I used to eat hot dogs too. I love, I love hot dogs. I, I, hot dog to me is, is, is a great uh, part of the meat, the meat the, uh, a great meat. And so I, I, I was getting hot dogs, and we had, a, we had a, a, another youth pastor that worked there. I did junior high. He did senior high. And he was like, do you know what's in a hot dog? You ever have somebody do that to you when you're, when you're like, do you know where that egg comes from? I don't want to know. I don't care. Like, I know where it comes from, but I don't want to think about where it's coming from. I'm about to eat it, right? Do you know where that hot dog comes from? Do you know what's how that's made? And I said, no. He, he, his history was in food processing. So he broke this entire thing down. He did this multiple times. He did this with salsa. If you ever don't want to eat salsa again, come talk to me. He did this with multiple things. And so he said, turn that hot dog over. So I turned it over, and I read the back of it. I thought it was a meat. I thought hot dog was like a meat, uh, like a part of the meat group, right? I didn't know hot dog was a byproduct of like 25 other things. And so he began, it had turkey, it has chicken, it has beef, it has pork. And I'm like, it's not that bad. He's like, no, you need to understand how the hot dog is made. I'm not going to tell you exactly how they're made because you're going to go home and eat them. I'm going to completely ruin this for you. I don't want to do that because everybody needs to eat a hot dog when you're watching a sports game. And so I was reading this thing and I'm like, I can't eat this anymore. Like I can never even look at a hot dog again. And he completely ruined my experience with hot dogs and so then I had a now you know moment so every time somebody offered me a hot dog I'd be like is that all beef (laughs) like I was a hot dog snob then you know what I'm saying they taste the exact same because they put the exact same slime in all of them right we don't know what it is is it all beef like that makes it any better right is that all beef so I come to your house try to serve me hot dogs I want to know is that all beef and if it's not I just tell you I'm fasting because I'm spiritual like that and so I had a now you know moment what I want to happen over the next six weeks is what I found in church world is there's people that get taken away from their faith uh, by, by, by things that they don't even recognize are taking them away from their faith. And, and I want you to know, because here's the thing, when you know what you're looking for, you'll better know how to handle it. When, when, when you know what you're looking for, you're, you're, you'll better know how to handle it. In fact, this is what it says of Satan in 1 Peter 5. And just so you know, so we establish this in week number one, Satan, if you're in a walk with Christ, he completely hates you. Do you understand that? He hates everything about your walk with Christ. He wants you to be depressed. He wants you to be defeated. He wants to take you as far away from the things of God as he possibly can. So when you get close to God, when you come into connection with God at all four of our campuses, you need to understand really frankly that he's going to do everything in his power to take you away. And here's the problem with Satan. He doesn't jump out like a red devil that you see and scare you. That would be too obvious. He uses other means that you maybe don't even recognize. And so what I'm going to help you do over the next six weeks is I'm going to help you see, hey, that right there, you need to know about that because when you know about that, you'll better know how to handle it. This is what it says of Satan in 1 Peter 5. It says, be alert and of sober mind. There's way too many Christians that, listen, we're not to make a big deal about the power of Satan, but we should recognize the person of Satan. We're not to make it. He doesn't have any power in your life, but he can influence you. He can't change anything. He can't create anything. The Bible says that he he has not authored the days of our life. He's not the author and perfecter. He can't change anything in our future, but he can influence you to miss the will of God. So he says, be alert and sober mind. Why? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Just so you understand, lions, they're, they're tough, right? But, but the roar is meant to intimidate people, and, and, and when they intimidate them, they want to separate the weakest uh, link from, from the pack, because if the pack stays together, they're strong, they're, they're, they're unified. It's really hard for a lion to attack a pack of animals, so they will rowl or growl and try to scare a weak one away, and when you're weak, that's when, that's when the devil attacks. 
This is the same principle. He, he attacks like a lion does. He will scare you into isolation. He will scare you off course. He will scare you and intimidate you. And when he sees that you're weak, that's when he'll attack. And so this is what he says. He says, resist him and stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Really important in that verse is, is the word same kinds. Satan's not creative at all. He uses almost the exact same techniques and temptations in every person's life that I've ever seen. If he doesn't get you with one, he'll try to get you with two. If he doesn't get you with two, he'll try to get you with three. If he doesn't get you with three, he'll try to get you with four. But he doesn't have very many tactics. And he's not creative. He has never created anything in this universe. He just tries to destroy it. And so what I want to do is we're going to talk about six different things over the next six weeks that I have seen come at Christians and take them away uh, from their faith. And, and you need to understand, at the very beginning, at the very foundation, the most important thing in your life is a growing knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ and being influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he wants to take you as quick and as far away from that as he possibly can. So we're going to go in the book of Revelation. And I know some of you are church people are like, that sounds interesting, right? Because Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and it can tend to be intimidating. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, we're not going to get into the parts that a lot of people confuse people, but we're going to stick right in the, the first few chapters. And there's, in the first few chapters, the Apostle John writes something in, in the scriptures that's called the seven letters to the churches. There's seven churches in Turkey that have been established. They're newer churches, and they're, they're, they're having a Six of them are kind of wandering away from the, the things of God. So he writes these letters, of these now you know letters. Hey, you need to recognize this, and this is what you need to do. So we're going to start today in the, in the very first one, the letter to the church of Ephesus. So you understand what's going on here. Ephesus is the third biggest city in the world at that time. 300,000 people lived in this city. It was right on the sea. It was a port city, had much influence, right? It was a pretty powerful city. And just so we understand, uh, understand the extent of the gospel, uh, when, when Paul Paul gets there. Paul arrived there some years earlier. The Apostle Paul is a missionary. He found 12 believers out of 300,000 people. There was 12 people that, that were followers of Christ out of 300,000. And so what happens in this church is pretty amazing. There's a miracle that happens where the word of God spreads and it spreads rapidly, and it gets effective, and they get influence, and they get power. And so then, then, then the apostle John, he referenced them in this first letter in the book of Revelation chapter 2, verse number 1. And I want to read this to you. We're going to start here uh, today. Verse number 1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you completely are lost right now, it's just a fancy way to say these are the words from Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. Like, this is what Jesus wants to say. The Bible says that the church is Jesus' bride, and this is him writing a letter to his bride. This is what he wants to say to this church. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. So the very first thing he says is he says your church is, has really good te uh, theology, really good theology. How do I know they have good theology? Because they're able to recognize a false prophet. You know what you believe. That's good. It, it, they're starting good. Like you guys, you guys are deep. You, you're deep enough to understand the basic beliefs of your faith to recognize a false teacher coming in. That, that's a compliment. And then Jesus does the ultimate thing that bosses have been trained. I don't know if you ever had a boss when they're going to give you criticism, they tend to make it a sandwich. They give you like something. Hey, your hair looks good. By the way, you're awful. But by the way, I like your wife, right? That'd be kind of awkward, right? <laughs> Something like that, like, like uh, you work really hard, you're always late, I'm going to fire you, right? Like something like that. Like that's a sandwich. Like I, I've learned this technique in, in, my, in, my, in, my, like, in books. So if you're you going to criticize somebody, make sure you don't destroy them and give them, find something they're doing well. If you can't find something somebody is doing well for you, you probably have the wrong people. Are right? we understand that? So Jesus says, hey, this is what you're doing well. Then he says, you got to hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've forsaken it. Consider how far that you've fallen. L look at how far you've drifted, he says. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he says, he says, you have good theology. You keep false teachers out. 
By the way, you've forgotten your first love. Oh, but here's another compliment. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which we don't know much about, but we do know that they were overbearing, angry leaders. And Jesus says in the Bible that if you're going to lead, you need to be a servant leader. So what he's saying is you've not taken on the practices of being an overbearing leader. You're, you're more of a shepherding leader. You have a shepherding heart in your church. So, so you have really good structure. You have good community. You're kind to each other. You serve one another. You have really good events in your church. That's one, something you're doing good. You also have really good theology. You have really deep classes, like you know what you believe. But by the way, in the middle, you've, you've forgotten the whole point of it. Here's what I found out. The very first thing Satan will do, if he can't get you to completely go off the deep end to be evil, the very first temptation that he will, he will get you to do, to get you to take, is he will get you to, to become a church person. He, he, he will get you to get so intertwined in the happenings of the church that you don't even know why you're in the church. That, that you, you, you have great theology, you know the story with your head, you have great groups, you're playing bunko together, you're sewing together, you're going fishing together, you're hanging out together, you have great groups, you got, you got great theology, but oh by the way, you, you forgot what, what, what you're here for, you, you forgot the reason. What had happened to this church? What had happened? Well we know from scripture what had happened. They're not very old, but when, when, when they first started, the Bible says that Paul shows up in Ephesus. He does his normal thing, which is go preach in the synagogue where the Jewish people were at, because the Jewish people, they had some, you know, they had some understanding of the story of Scripture. So he was trying to say, like, this, this is the fulfillment of Scripture. But the Jewish people hated Paul so much that they ran him out of the synagogue. So Paul became the first portable church in the, in the, book, in the city of Ephesus, and he ran it out of town hall. If you were here with us a few years ago, you, this is similar to us running out the Colonial Theater. And, and he began, uh, the reason we can run out the Colonial Theater is because they didn't have movies on Sunday morning. The town hall he rented was closed at certain times of the day. So Paul rented it out. And what separated him from the other philosophers and, and, and the other religions of that city was not the theology and not the, not, the, not the process, not the groups that they had. Even though those are good things, what separated the early church of Ephesus was the power of God. The Bible says that demons began to be cast out of people, that people began to be healed. And it says in Scripture that within years, that all in the city had heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That from twelve to 300,000 people now have heard of the, 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 the power of the gospel of Christ. We don't know how many people knew and were in relationship, but we know everybody had heard. Think about the, 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 the meaning and the, the understanding behind that. There's no social media. There's no technology. There's no sharing. There's no, there's no hashtags. But they've shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit was on this church. And then they, they go for a few years, and the Bible says that, that the thing that made them powerful and successful, they no longer needed anymore. So now they had theology, and, and, and now they had processes and classes. Now they had good groups. And I, and I thought to myself, man, how often does that happen to church people? And so the best word I can think of is, is when, when, when the Holy Spirit was speaking to this church was, was they got domesticated. Isn't that a good word? Domesticated, it means to tame. It means to convince that you're only good for house chores. Don't ever say that to your wife or your husband. I'm just happy you're domesticated now. It means to treat as ordinary. They had been domesticated. And here's the problem with when you get domesticated. The longer that you're allowed to be domesticated, the farther you can drift from your original purpose. The farther you can go from your original purpose, the, the farther you'll drift. Like when, you, when you're domesticated, the farther, they, we're power, the Holy Spirit's moving, people are getting saved, people are getting healed, and a few years later, we're doing church. Coming in, we sing our four songs, we leave, come, come twice a month, we, we're in a couple groups, it's fun, we leave. What once was exciting and passionate and people were, were, were coming to the altars and they, they wanted the presence of God. They were sacrificing. We're going to talk about it in a moment. They were giving things up. They, 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 were, they were fearing God. All these things were happening. Now they're domestic. Think about it. That word even sounds awful. I'm domesticated. So let me, let me, get, let me explain, explain this really practically because uh, Scripture, oftentimes when Jesus talks about the church, he, he referenced a bride and groom. So Jesus is the groom, and he calls his church the bride. That's why when you treat the church bad, that's like telling Jesus that, that I don't like your wife. That's a scary thing. So, so, so he, he says bride and groom. So let's just relate that for a second. You remember when you first met your spouse and you got married, how wild it was? Some of y'all. Come on, I just want you to think about it for a little bit. 
The things that you did that nobody else knows that you've done, like your kids are sitting there, you're getting red right now. Your husband's like, remember that, honey? And you're like, stop. Stop talking about it. So I see women back there. How exciting it was, the things that, places you went. Listen, let's not even talk in intimate terms. How exciting the conversation was, like how passionate your time together was when you used to walk around, you would hold hands, and and you'd sit under a table at at a family function, and you'd be rubbing each other's legs and, and leaning on each other in the car, even though there wasn't a middle seat, like there wasn't a spot for a seat, it was a console. You would be scooted all the way over anyways. Are you comfortable? Not really, but I just want to be close to you, you would go park out of park, right, and, and, and just talk, and you would do all sorts of things like that. It was wild. Come on, man. Let's think about it. It's, exci- it's, okay, to, it's okay to get excited at church a little bit. And so it was wild. And then you get married. Or, or, or then, after you're married, you, you, have, you have responsibilities. You get domesticated, right? You, you, have, you have a house, and you have chores. you got to clean, actually, because there's no cleaning genie that comes around. You pray that a miracle would happen. God, you parted the Red Sea. God, why don't you clean that toilet ring for me by your power of your presence? It doesn't work. So you got to clean it. you got to pay bills. you got to get a job and get up early. Then you have kids, and then you're taking kids to practice, and you're making lunches, and, and you're domesticated. By the time you lay your head on, on the pillow at nighttime, you're not even thinking about the wild things you used to do with your spouse. You're just domesticated, right? Hey, honey, I love you. I'll see you in the morning. I feel like I'm about to die. And so you're just, come on, I'm preaching good. You're domesticated. You know what happens to a lot of people when they get to this point? The longer that you allow yourself to be, and there's nothing wrong with those. Let me tell you something. Cleaning the house, taking care of my kids, making lunches, some of the greatest blessings in my life. Theology is a really important thing for a church. Keeps you on the right road. Processes, events, groups. They're really important because it helps you to add people to the, to the bus or the van. Church van, that's a good picture, right? You've been on a church van before as you're driving along the road. But, but it's the power that's so crucial to it. There's nothing wrong with the chores. There's nothing wrong with the kids. There's nothing wrong with the responsibilities. But what I found to happen is married couples get so domesticated that by the time their kids get out of the house, they've drifted so far apart from each other that they think, we just, we've just changed. No, you haven't changed. You've drifted. And you see the answer in Scripture. He says, you've lost your first love, but I love Scripture because it's so complete. He says, let me tell you how to get it back, and you'll see it's so simple. I I love what he says. I want to read it to you because it's so important. He says this. He says, says, repent and go back and do the things you did at first. In other words, what he's saying is, if your marriage has been domesticated and you're falling apart, every counselor would tell you, Go back and do the things you did in the beginning, and you'll have the thing you had in the beginning. In fact, I would believe it would get even better. If you're in a spiritual walk with Christ, and you feel yourself drifting, let me, let me explain to you. If you got saved in the last year, and you remember the moment where we used to come into church, you were excited. You were actually here when church started. You remember that? You were like, I can't miss the singing, because you've never heard singing like this before. And it's not because the band is so impressive, but you've never been in a worship experience when it wasn't about the music, it was about the presence of God. You came, you're like, I can't miss one minute of the 23 minutes that they're going to sing. I can't miss it. I got to get my kids in. I got to get there. Why? The presence of God is going to be. Remember that moment? And then you were so hungry for the word of God. You actually brought your Bible to church one time. You were reading your Bible. You were praying. You were getting up early. And then you started looking around at other church people, and you're like, what's wrong with them? Walk in late, barely sing when the music comes on. Ask them to close their eyes. They won't even close their eyes because they just don't want to because they're church people. Just want to get out of there and get to lunch. You look around and you're like, oh, what happened? You know if you're there. Like, what, what was it like when you first, like, if you've never had that initial moment when you, when you, when you first got saved and you were passionate and, and, and excited and wanted that, like, I don't know if you were ever saved because for those of us who found Jesus and he changed us, there was that moment, but it's taken from so many of us. And the truth is, if you see yourself being taken away from God, if you've been domesticated, if it's more about church and more about processes and more about programs than it is about the presence of God, the scripture says, just go back and do what you did in the beginning and you'll have what you had in the beginning. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Because the cool thing about scripture is we know exactly what the church of Ephesus did in the beginning. This church wasn't that old, and we clearly understand from the book of Acts 
what exactly happened. And so we can assume that the things they were doing in the beginning, they no longer were doing. We don't know how long, how much time has passed. Some people say 100 years. Some people say 30 years. Some people say it's just been a couple years. We don't even know who the pastor of this church is in this moment at this point. But we can assume from Scripture, here's the things they aren't doing anymore that's causing them to drift. If you want what you had in the beginning, do what you did in the beginning. And so here's what we know from the book of Acts, uh, chapter uh, number uh, 19. This is what it says at the beginning of the church of Ephesus. Remember, I said the Holy Spirit moved. People came from all walks of life. I want, I want to show you their response to the power of God. I, I love this. People don't respond like this to church. Do you understand that? Nobody walks into church and goes, oh, that, that music changed my life. It just changed my life. Oh, those black chairs, they just comforted me so much. I feel so much better about myself now. That cup of coffee was anointed and holy. That hour of being away from my kids, it completely changed my life. That's not what happens. People come into a building. It's just a building. It doesn't matter if you're in Limerick and it's a 40-year-old church or you're in Plymouth Meeting and it's an 150-year-old church or you're in Roresford and it's a ladies' gym. Or you're right here and it's this old warehouse. We don't know what went on in here. It's, it's, it's not the room that changes people's lives. It's the presence of God. So the Bible says the presence of God is changing people's lives. I want to show you how they reacted. This is what Scripture says in Acts chapter 19, verse number 17. And we can assume these are the things they weren't doing anymore. Ready? Acts chapter 19, verse 17. It says, when this became known, when the power of God became known to the Jews and the, and the Greeks living in Ephesus, number one, they were all seized with fear. If you have a U version, you can highlight, highlight that. That's number one. That they were all seized with fear. Then it says, number two, the name of Jesus was held in highest honor. That's number two. They honored the name of Jesus. Number three, many of those who had believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Number three, there was an atmosphere of open confession. And then I love number four in verse 19. It says, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. We're going to address that in a minute. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So let me talk to you about four things that was causing them to drift that I think if you would evaluate your life and you're not where you were before, if you're not closer and more passionate, not exciting. I'm not talk, we talked about excitement last week, and I don't know if I did a good enough job of telling you I'm not excited about church at all, but I am more passionate today about church than I was 15 years ago. I, I need to, I need, like you can, you can be more passionate about your walk with Christ than you were when you started. You can be more passionate about your relationship with your spouse, maybe not as excited, but more passionate. Passion is something inside of you. It's something that keeps you going. It's a calling you have. And I want to show you four things that I think if you don't have that, that maybe you stop doing. Number one is this, is they stopped having a healthy fear. You know there's such thing as a healthy fear? I went to, uh, my, my son's son had a birthday party he went to, and we went to it. It was in this, this civic center in Phoenixville, and, and the kid let us be played basketball stuff, but at the end of the party, they had, a, they had a petting zoo come in with all sorts of crazy animals, like, like African porcupines and all sorts of crazy stuff, and then they brought this python out, right? And they were like, who wants to hold it? Who wants to hold the python? And so, now, now I am un, under the theological belief now, in the book of Genesis, it clearly says that Satan was a snake, right? With legs, I assume, right? So now that the snake has no legs and it's, it has to slither on his belly, that thing is satanic, right? Like, I don't want to touch a snake. I don't even want to look at a snake. When I go to the zoo, I don't even go into the reptile thing. I don't want to be in there. It's dark. Who knows what's escaped, right? So we're at the thing, and Lincoln's got the python around his neck. He's holding it, slithering all over. I'm like 20 feet back, and then he's like, Dad, you won't hold it. I'm like, no. And the lady's like, why? He's tame. He's trained. And I was like, you know who never gets bit by a snake, lady? People that never touch a snake. <laughs> I didn't touch that thing. Why? I have a healthy fear. I like my life. I want to live. I don't want to get bit by a snake. I don't care if they're not slimy. I don't care what they do. I don't care if you have one as a pet. I don't want to see it. I have a healthy fear. It keeps me from getting bit. You can have a healthy fear of God. Did you know that? You can have a healthy fear in your relationship with your spouse if we are to make that uh, connection. You remember when you were first married to, to your spouse or maybe even dating your spouse, you had that healthy fear? 
You, you, you feared that they wouldn't know how much that you loved them. You feared that they wouldn't know how much you were committed to them. You feared and you thought about and you calculated every word, every action. You feared that they wouldn't know how much you cared about them by your physical appearance. You took care of yourself. You brushed your teeth. You changed your underwear and your socks. Like you were, you were fearful of losing them. And then you get married. What happens? That fear is gone. You're stuck with me now, baby. It says right here on this marriage certificate, till death do you part, Right? We're stuck. And you, you lose that, that fear. The same thing happened in this church. The Bible says in, in the scripture to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So I, I want, want you to understand what this means. It doesn't mean you're afraid of, of the presence of God. Although you, you should be. The, the, the before Jesus died on the cross, the presence of God was intimidating, right? It doesn't mean you're supposed to be afraid of the presence of God. Here's what it means. You should be afraid of missing the presence of God. There, there, there was something inside of this early church. They walked in and they experienced something that they had never experienced before. And all their, 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 their religious findings and all of their possessions and all of their studies and all of their relationships and all of the money that they had, all of the significance. I mean, this is a big city. If you live in a big city, you have tons of opportunity. And all those things, when they met the presence of God, there was something that they feared missing out on. That they were afraid. You remember when you were first saved and you were afraid you were going to miss out on the presence of God? Do you understand? When we show up together in any one of these rooms, this moment that's happening will never happen again in the history of this world. Do you know that? If you skip church, you don't get a redo. If you don't come, the Bible says where two or more gathered in his name that the very presence of God shows up in that room and that presence will never be offered in the same manner at the same time with the same people it will never happen again in the history of the world that means something historical is going to happen every time we come into God's presence and the people of that early church they feared missing out so if you stop fearing missing out if you wake up on Sunday and you go eh you, you could be drifting just like you'd be drifting from your spouse from the presence of God. Another thing that we've, that we've noticed, number two, is this, is they stopped honoring the name of Jesus. They, they stopped honoring the name of Jesus. You know what the word honor means? It means a sense of feeling privilege. The, the sense of, of feeling uh, privilege to be in the presence of God. A, a sense of, of being honored to even be called by name to the King of kings and Lord. A sense of feeling privilege that you even have a chance to utter the name of Jesus. And the Bible says, at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, demons shudder, and you are able to utter that word, and heaven will respond. They honor the name of Jesus. Remember when you were first married, and, and, and your wife, you would have, I had a little, little phone, it had Snake on it. You guys remember Snake? That was, that, was the, that was the game I had on my phone. I had a little Nokia phone, looked like a piece of, piece of pack of gum, and my wife would call me in college. She wasn't my wife yet, and I would see Leah pop up. No matter what I was doing in that moment, whatever I was doing, I was like, I got to answer it. Why? Because she was the name above all names in my life. Whatever it was, I'll pick it up. Hey, baby. That's what you, hey, baby. Hey, baby. You need anything? No, babe, I just want to talk to you. No matter how busy I was, no matter what I was doing, no matter what I was participating in, no matter who I was hanging out with, I didn't care if all my guy friends were there and they were making fun of me. I was like, what do you need? What do you need, baby? You need to talk to me? Okay. I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't ashamed. I didn't care. They were just jealous. They were alone, right? I had, I had, Leah was on the phone. I didn't care. And then flash forward 14 years later, 17 years later, whatever it is, 14 years married. I don't know how long we've been dating, right? We've been together for years. Same phone. Now I got, now I got iPhone. I got all sorts of other stuff on it, all sorts of apps, stuff like that. And the name of Leah pops up, right? Some of you have a special ring for your spouse. You know what I'm saying? I, somebody in this church, I'm not going to mention names, has the, the Mario Brothers When You Die song, Game Over, right? When your spouse calls. I'm not going to say who it is because he'll be in trouble and need counseling. I know a good one, right? So your wife, your wife calls and you're like, oh. You're busy. You know if you pick it up. I don't do this to my wife. You do it to your wife. And so you pick it up. Hey, honey. Hey, what do you need? Nothing. You're not like, oh, that's okay. You're like, what? What do you mean you need nothing? You call me on this day? Because listen, the name before you were married, you honored. But after you were married and you drifted from each other, you're no longer honoring that name above all names. Same thing happens with, with God. Same thing happens with Jesus. When you first get saved, do you not honor him above anything? 
Is he not your highest priority? Is he not all you want? Is he not your biggest prize? Is his presence not needed in your life? Are you not infatuated with being able to sing the presence of God and him responding to prayers and him having purpose and power for your life? And all of a sudden, after you've been with him for a few years, Jesus calls you like, oh, man. I know he's going to want something and I'm, I'm busy. Rather, rather, rather stay away from God and not have to hear his voice and let him know I'm, I'm busy. And all of a sudden they stopped honoring the name of Jesus. They had church and they had groups. They went to church when it was convenient. They went to groups when they liked them. But they didn't have the power of the presence of God. Why? Because they stopped honoring the name of Jesus. Number, number three is this. I think this is so good. Uh, they stopped openly confessing sins. You remember when you were first with your, with your spouse? And literally, you were an open book. Like there was nothing that you wanted to come in between you and them. So you, at a, in a healthy relationship, if you don't have this already, you're dating, you need to get out, right? But in a healthy relationship, you're openly confessing your past, you're confessing things you've done, you're talking about them. Why? Because you don't want anything to hinder your future relationship. You understand that any covered up sin you have in your life is an uncoverable sin. The same thing happens when you're a new believer, doesn't it? I just want God to know me. The Bible says that he knows me better than I know myself. So anything that's in my life, anything that's causing distraction, anything that's causing distance, anything that's causing disconnection, I want to give to him. Why? Because I know that any unconfessed sin is an uncovered sin in my life. And here's the problem with an unconfessed sin that's uncovered. An uncovered sin will cause distance between you and God. He can't be near sin, and he can't forgive, or unconfe- forgive unconfessed sin. It's uncoverable, and the problem with unconfessed sin, the Bible says that the wages of unconfessed sin is death and hell. So there was some point in your life where everything in your life was taken seriously. Like everything you did, every mistake, you were like, I can't believe I did that. God, I let you down. You would come back to God. You would hear the voice of reconciliation. You would hear the voice of forgiveness. You would receive the grace of God, and you would keep going. Understand that his grace was there for when you fell down. And then you gradually move away. And you let, you let sin kind of stay in your life too long. You stop making such a big deal of it, not fully understanding that it's that same sin that you experienced or did back then that you're doing now that put Jesus on the cross. Maybe you stop, you stop worrying about that image, not understanding that every time you gossip, every time you lie, every time you lust, every time you don't tell the truth, every time you're angry, every time you speak a word of judgment on somebody else, that has put Jesus on the cross. And you can be connected to the power of the cross through confession of sins constantly in your life. I don't want anything to come in between me and God. But some of you have forgotten how big of a deal it was and you have not confessed it and now it's uncovered and it has created distance in your life. I don't know if you ever experienced that when you go to pray and it feels like there's a ceiling on your prayers. And the truth is the reason there's a ceiling on your prayers is they can't get to heaven because you don't have a rightful spot at his, at his table anymore because you are full with, with unconfessed sin. And so what he's saying is, hey, uncover your sin, uncover your pain. In fact, that's what it says in the book of Psalms 32. It says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in him whose spirit there is no deceit. I love that. And then it says, it says, it says when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You ever notice that about sin? When you hold it in, it just, it just eats you away. It's like a disease in your life. It says, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But verse number five says, but then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And watch this. And you forgave the sin, the guilt of my sin. Maybe, maybe it's not the sin that's destroying you. Ultimately, the sin is going to send you it's going to separate you from God, but man, the guilt of holding the sin, when I give it to God, he, he takes the guilt from me, man. They stop confessing sins, and, and number, number four, uh, they stop sacrificing. Remember when you were in a brand new relationship with your, with your husband and wife, and you'd be out to eat with them? Maybe you never experienced this, but maybe something similar like this. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm Dutch, right? If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, right? Like, I'm just Dutch. I thought I was Italian for a long time. I thought that's where I got my nose from. It sounds a lot cooler when you say you have a big nose because you're Italian. I found out I just have a big nose because I'm Dutch, right? Dutch people are special. It is different. And Dutch people can tend to get set in their ways. That's an understatement, right? So when we go to restaurants, 
If I find something I like in a restaurant, I get the same thing at the restaurant. I don't care if they change their menu. I don't care if they got something new. I don't care if they have a special. I get the same thing. I can tell you on almost every restaurant what I'm going to get, right? So when we first started dating, I was like that. And my wife, she's, she's a girl, right? You know girls. They, they're never fully content with anything, and they always want to try something new. That's the personality of a girl. And so she would always get something new. So I, my food would come. It looked the same. It was good. I was going to eat it. And then her food would come, and it looked like, like garbage, right? And I remember when we first dated, she would look up at me. I would look up at her. And she would kind of look back down at her food, and I knew what she was thinking. Your food looks much better than my food. And without her even having to say it, I would, I would switch the place. And she would say, no, 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 it's okay. I would say, no, 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 honey. What's mine is yours, and it would be my honor to share my food with you. And I would pull her plate aside, and I would eat it. And, and as I was eating it, I was, Whoa. you like it? I love it, honey. Why? Because what's mine is yours. Now we're married, right? Go to the restaurant. I get my thing. She gets hers. My thing looks much better than hers. I get the same thing I got 14 years ago. And I can feel her looking at me. You know what I do? I just keep my head down. (laughs) That's what happens in a domesticated, drifting relationship. And I love what they say. Because remember when you were an early Christian? and, And while you were really, really into walking with Christ, like everything you had that you had was his. Everything. Like any, any decision that he wanted you to make, you made it. Anything you had in your pockets was his. Any talent was his because that's what scripture said. You wanted to sacrifice and give, but at some point this church stopped sacrificing. But there was a heart in that church where they sacrificed. In fact, it says in scripture that a number who practiced sorcery in this moment brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And I love this. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That means nothing to me and you if you read it. But if you go and study it, the equivalent to what they did in that moment equaled $5 million today. This was a sacrificial church. Anything we have. In other words, what they were saying is, you are my highest treasure. And I believe if you're drifting here today, There's probably been a moment where where you stop saying that to God. You're my highest treasure. Everything I have is is yours. I think there was a moment where maybe he asked for a little more and you were like, no, not that. That's mine. Maybe you find your identity and self-worth. Maybe you get your insecure in who you are in Christ and you know if you give up that, that you're going to not match up with somebody else, not fully understanding that you are one in a million, that God created you for a special reason at a special time with a special purpose in this moment in history to accomplish something for him. Maybe you struggle with that, and he's asked for it, and you said, not that, God. You can't have that, and you stopped sacrificing. Or maybe you stopped honoring his name. He started calling and asking, and, hey, 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 I, I want to talk to you, and you're, no, I don't have time, God. Or maybe you just stopped fear and missing out. We always talk about FOMO, fear of missing out in our lives. What happened in the church? How's the church filled with people that, that don't fear missing out? How is it so easy for us to miss out on the presence of God? Yes, God lives everywhere, but the Bible was clear that where two or three are gathered in his name, that a special anointed presence of God shows up in too many of us. We don't even fear missing it. don't even care. How is it that you've allowed distance to come between you and God? You carry around secret sin, unconfessed sin. Here's the scary thing, friend. That unconfessed sin is uncoverable. It's unforgivable. It's the grievance of the Holy Spirit. You're in a position where he can't get to you because you won't let go of what's keeping you from him. And here's the thing. If you're drifting today, if you would say, you know what? There was a time I was more connected to God than I, than I, than I am now. Then you're, you've been domesticated and you're drifting. And here's the thing. If you're drifting, the only response is to say, hey, who's moved, me or God? Who's moved? Who's changed? Me or God? And here's the thing about it. You thinking that God has drifted from you is about as stupid of a conclusion of me going to the beach, putting up my beach stuff on the beach, putting my kids down to make a castle, setting up the chair for my wife to tan, going into the beach, into the water, getting my boogie board out and starting to float on it, taking a little bit of a nap, floating down 10 blocks and getting mad at my wife for moving. Think about it. I'm not going to the beach and say, I can't believe they're not here anymore. I'm going to get out and I'm going to go, whoa. I fell asleep at the wheel, at the boogie board. 
and I've drifted down 10 blocks. And what's my job? I've got to pick my boogie board up, and I need to walk back to my family. The Bible says if you draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. If you've drifted, you're the one who's changed, not God. And trust me, Satan wants nothing more. If he can't get you to be evil, what he's going to do, he's going to get you to sit in a church and be domesticated. He's going to sit you, sit you in a church and give you a brain knowledge of God, but nothing powerful ever happened in your life. He's going to get you into a bunch of groups with other people who have been calm, cooled, and collected. They've calmed down their faith. This is not that big of a deal. He wants you not to make a big deal of his presence. He wants you not to make a big deal of his forgiveness. He wants you not to make a big deal of his sacrifice. He's going to calm you down with a bunch of other church people. It's one of the worst diseases in the church today. The presence of God is here. Do you understand that? It's the only thing of value. It's the only thing that changes you. It's not the music. It's not the preaching. It's not the kids' ministry. It's not the seats. It's not the coffee. It's not the greeters. It's not the lights. It is nothing besides the presence of God. And we got to stop, friend, making light of it. Man, I fear missing out on God. God, whatever you need, I'll give. God, I don't want anything to come between me. God, I feel like I've drifted. If you've drifted, you need to change. Here's the thing. Do what you did in the beginning. And you'll return and have what you had in the beginning. Would you stand up with me all over this house? Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? And I want to ask you something, friend. All over our campus is Royersford Plymouth Meeting in Limerick. You drifting? You drifting? Your relationship with God domesticated? Let me tell you about the power of God. The Bible says that when Jesus left, that he sent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter came. And Jesus said of the Holy Spirit that you would be able to do even greater things than I've done on this earth. That Holy Spirit is still moving and living and breathing fire on the inside of his believers. He still wants to do immeasurably more you could ever ask, dream, or imagine. If the life you're living is anything other than a God-sized miracle, then you're probably drifting. You've been domesticated in your faith. You're not here just to sit. You're not here just to be part of a church. You're not here just to learn the stories. The reason we learn the stories is that our, so our mind is opened up to the wonder of the glory of God. I want the same power that flowed through the early apostles to flow through me. And I believe fully. I know there's a teaching out there that says it's not needed anymore. We have the same mission. We need the same Holy Spirit. The same power. He's available to you. Some of you, your life has never changed. It is always in a point of, seems like an endless cycle. You're always addicted. Your marriage is always on the brink of being broken. You can't stop a habit. You need to come to the power and presence of God. The name above all names. The Bible says that the way that God wants you to come to Him is not through effort. It's not through eloquence. It's through humility. I'm going to humble myself in the sight of the Lord. And the Bible says that he will lift you up. So listen, if you're drifting, you humble yourself in this moment. God, I've let myself go. I've let myself go. I stopped fearing missing out. I stopped honoring your name above any other name. God, I've let so much garbage come in my life. God, I stopped giving and sacrificing a long time ago. Here's the thing. There's not a distance that you've created that the gap can't be closed by one step back towards God. One step. But that first step back is your responsibility. It's an action step. I am going to draw close to God today. I've drifted. I've let myself go. I've wandered away from God. It's been one small step at a time. I've allowed myself to become something I'm not proud of. I've allowed distance to come into my life. Today, I'm going to draw close to God. Maybe that's you in this place. Or maybe you say, you know what? I don't have a relationship with God at all. At all. I have a head knowledge, but my life has not changed. I look exactly like everybody else. I do the exact same things as everybody else. I struggle with the exact same things as, as everybody else. I think about the exact same things as everybody else. I don't want that life anymore. There's a God that loves you, that has a plan that's bigger for you than you could ever imagine. Satan wants nothing more than for you to limp through this life without purpose, without passion, without a future. The Bible says that the way that you return, the way that you come into relationship with God at all three of our campuses is through his son, Jesus Christ. It's not religion. Religion says, hey, 
all these things are true of me, so I'm going to clean stuff up, and then I'll come to God, and maybe he'll take me back, and we'll be, we'll be good. That's religion. I'm going to do my best and hope. The gospel says that your best would never be good enough to forgive your sins. It would never be good enough to make things right. Not a matter how good that you got, that you would still be far from God. So instead of you trying to do your best to get God to pay attention to you, that God sent his best to let you know he's paying attention to you right now. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the Bible says in John 3, 16. For God so loved you, the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever... No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you brought into this place, no matter how bad that you think you are, no matter how distant you are from God, no matter how much you've drifted, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What's that word perish? The Bible says the wages of your sin is death and hell. I'm not going to lie about it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Every one of us is going to die. Every one of us is going to stand before God someday. Every one of us. And you could on, you could on to the belief that you're a good person, but you know full well you might be better than the person next to you. But if somebody were to open you up and know everything about you, that you're not a good person, that I'm not a good person, that's not why I'm saved today, and that's not why I'll spend eternity with God through his son Jesus, that I'm a saved person, that I was broken and I was lost, and there was a moment in time when I felt the knocking at the door of my heart. I bent my knee and my will to God, and I said, come on in, Jesus, and he saved me and he changed me. I confessed with my mouth. I believed in my heart that Jesus is Lord. And I know as I'm talking about this that there's a voice maybe inside your head that's trying to keep you from Jesus. Trying to convince you you're not good enough. Trying to convince you it's not real. Trying to convince you not to respond. That's the voice of a liar. The Bible says Satan is a liar. Every word he speaks, he lies. So right now I'm asking you, I'm praying for you. Give him spiritual ears and spiritual eyes. Let him, let him hear the voice of God. I'm going to ask that God would turn up his spirit in your head right now that that knock at the door of your heart would be there I can't explain it as as in any other way except to tell you that when I was 18 the way that that knock came was a burning in my chest and I could just feel the creator of the universe telling me I want to have a relationship with you and I've never been the same from this day from that day forward not perfect but not the same so maybe you're in this place and you say you know what God's knocking at the door of my heart all over our campuses with our campus pastor standing there. I'm going to ask you to do something really bold. And I know every voice in your head is trying to tell you, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Because Satan wants to keep you and hold you and ruin your life. But I'm going to ask you to do something really bold in this moment. If you say, you know what, today I need to choose Jesus. He's chosen me. Today I'm going to choose Jesus. I'm going to reach out and respond to the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. I want to pray with you as we close, but I want to know that I'm praying with you. And so I'm going to ask you to do something bold with nobody looking around. If you would say, you know what, I don't have a relationship with God at all. I know him. I don't know him. I've been in church. I've never been in church. Here's what I know. I can't tell you the moment in time where I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I can't tell you that moment. Today is your moment. Today, that's what we're offering you. I'm not offering you religion. I'm offering you a new life found in Jesus Christ. There's no other name. There's no other name but the name of Jesus. If you're in this house and you say, you know what, I need a relationship with God, real boldly, I just want you to shoot your hand up in the air. If you're at Plymouth Meeting, Limerick, and Royersford, I need a relationship with God through His Son. I want to pray with you as we close. I don't want you to miss this moment. I want you to shoot your hand right up in the air and say, Pastor, I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life. All over our houses, I just want you to keep your hand up. Hi, I see a hand over, over here. Is there anybody else to my right? I see a hand to the left. Yes, yes. If, you, if you're a Christian, would you just pray for them as we... As we give them an opportunity to respond to the gospel, would you just pray in this moment? Would you just ask the power of God to be here? Would you ask the voice of God to be clear in their head? I'm going to wait one more second. I'm not going to try to make you do it out of emotion or feeling. I want this to be a real moment in your life. God, I'm, I'm tired of living life on my own. I'm tired of trying to be a husband on my own, a wife on my own, a parent on my own. I'm tired of trying to be a boss on, on my own. I'm tired of trying to make purpose on my own. God, I'm tired of trying to get over bitterness and unforgiveness on my own. And we're rejoicing with those in Plymouth Meeting in Limerick. We're, we're, we're celebrating with you. We're so thankful that you're responding to the gospel. One more second. Is there anybody else? Royersford, Phoenixville, anywhere else you say, that's me. I need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I need to give my life to Jesus. Is there anybody else? I see another hand right here. Yes. That's why we're waiting. 
I believe God's still doing something. He's still doing something. He's still talking to someone in this house. He's still talking to someone in this house. Is there anybody else who would say, that's me. I need a relationship with Jesus. We're going to pray. And as we pray, I just want you to talk to God like you would talk to your friend. The Bible says that Jesus sticks closer to you than a brother. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so this is not eloquence. This is not rehearsed. This is simply just you saying, I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. I see your hand right here on the right. Thank you so much, friend. And all you're going to do is invite Jesus into your life right now. That's it. It's real simple. It's real simple. God knows you better than you know yourself. So let's pray together all over these houses. Jesus, I just want you to come into my life right now. You know me. I know that. You know what I struggle with. You know what I deal with. You know what I'm addicted to. You know what I'm angry about. You know what I'm bitter about. You know what what Satan says to me to lie to me. You know everything about me, God. You know how much I've run. But God, you ran to me today. Lord, I believe what the pastor said. I can feel your power and your presence drawing me to yourself. I believe in what John 3.16 says, for you so love the world, you so love me, that you sent your only begotten son to me. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but we will inherit eternal life. Jesus, today I'm a brand new creation, not because of anything that I've done, but because of everything you did for me on that cross. You hung on a cross, you were put in a tomb, and on the third day you rose from the dead and you rewrote history. And right now, you are rewriting the story of my life. What was true of me before I got here is no longer true of me. The addictions that I struggle with, the pain that I dealt with, the bitterness that took over my life. Right now, Jesus, I'm finding freedom. That's what scripture says. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I'm thankful, Father, that the best days of their life are ahead of them. That your voice is going to get turned up in their life. That when Satan comes to remind them of who they were, Lord, would they understand what Scripture says, that when you come to Jesus, that your past, your sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. What that means is, is God chooses to forget them as if they've never happened. Lord, we're going to live our life in freedom, in peace, in mercy, in hope from this day forward. This Monday is going to be the best Monday of our lives, not because it's going to be easy, not because it's going to be without struggle, but it's going to be the first day that we're living and walking on this earth in relationship to our Creator. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in this place. Thank you. Right now, as a church, let us just stop. Let us just fix our eyes on what's in heaven right now. The Bible says when one person comes home, that all of heaven rejoices. Thank you for your presence, God. Thank you for your presence. It's all we want in our house. That's all, that's all we need. It's not about music. It's not about a sermon. It's not about a room. It's not about lights. It's about your presence, God. That's what our world needs. That's what our world needs is your presence, Lord. And so right now we just celebrate the fact that you would show up. A bunch of sinners saved by grace that you would show up in our presence and you would move mountains. The Bible says that mountains, they melt like wax in the presence of God. Thank you for our family and friends who have responded to the gospel. Thank you for those who are you are going to continue to reach. Thank you, Lord, for going with us this week. Help us to represent you in everything we think, say, and do. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody in our house, would you just shout amen with me? Come on, let's say it like we mean it. Say amen. Come on, let's say it like you mean it. Say amen. Let's clap together.